welcome to This Week in Video Games episode 111. My name is Tom Kershaw and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. For this week I've been playing a Plague Tale Requiem, where Hugo and Amasia take on the Black Death. I've also been getting ready for Halloween by checking out Scorn. Plus we've had showcases from the Silent Hill team and also Resident Evil 2. All that, plus I'll be saying goodbye to Google Stadia and checking in on the state of seasonal events in Destiny 2. So it's a busy show, so let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're well and you're having a good week. Yeah, I'm good this week, and it's getting to be about that time of year when you put on your witch's hat or you dress up like a werewolf. That is right, it is Halloween. And it's just around the corner, so the games industry appears to be like it's celebrating early with a whole bunch of announcements this past week. I'm going to talk about them with you today. First of all, Silent Hill is coming back from Konami, and this is not a drill. After many years of speculation, rumour and rest, Silent Hill is back, you know, with four projects no less, and not to be outdone. Capcom were quick to respond by holding a showcase only a day later related to Resident Evil, and Capcom updated us on Resident Evil 4, which is coming early next year, plus a whole swathe of other projects too. Well, I didn't get the chance to speak about Google Stadia going away on the last episode of the podcast, so today is the perfect time to do so. Now, Google does have a habit of shutting down their unsuccessful projects, but this one really seemed doomed from the very start. I'm going to be talking about that later on in the show. Well, before we get into it, it'd be great if you could leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the podcast get some more eyes on it. I do have a link in the podcast description, so if you like the show and you want to leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. Plus, I'll read out the review on the future episode of the podcast. Also, if you want to support the show further, check out This Week in Video Games on Patreon and check out all of those Patreon benefits. Well, that is it for my waffly intro, but let's get into what I've been playing this week. Well, this week I've been checking out a Plague Tale Requiem, the follow-up to the very surprisingly successful Plague Tale Innocence from a few years ago. This is another rat-infested adventure with impressive graphics and decent storytelling. I'm going to get into my review first up in the show. Well, next I've been playing Scorn... This is a very strange and often disgusting puzzle game. You know, if you've got the stomach for it, there's some entertainment in there somewhere, and I'll let you know if I manage to find it later on in the show. Well, finally, as always, I've been playing Destiny 2, so this week the Halloween event started, which is with us for the next three weeks. So as well as bringing you my thoughts on the event itself, I'm also going to be looking at the state of seasonal events in Destiny 2. They are a huge part of the live service seasonal model, and a big part of modern ongoing games, so look forward to that later on. Well, without further delay, let's check out my review of Plague Tale Requiem. Well, Plague Tale is back with its sequel, Requiem, following on from the first game, A Plague Tale Innocence, which managed to pleasantly surprise audiences when it was released back in 2019. It wowed fans with its unique rat technology, and now A Plague Tale Requiem is here to improve on the first game, as Amicia and Hugo desperately search for a cure. A Plague Tale is set in 14th century France, although in this game you do get to go to other places, but the Black Death is rife, 
It's killing hundreds of millions of people. Rats were identified as carrying the disease and spreading it like wildfire, and Hugo appears to have a mysterious connection with the rats, a gift that is being exploited by the people around him. Unfortunately for Hugo and Amicia, this connection with the rats is slowly killing the boy. It's up to them to find a cure before it takes Hugo's life. We start the game in relative peace and quiet since the events of the first game, with Amicia and Hugo and their mother have decided for a fresh start and moved to a new city. But it's not long before they find trouble once again and the rats arrive with the plague and all hell breaks loose. And once again the rat technology is employed and they run and crawl all over each other moving in a huge mass together like some big deadly creature. With regards to the gameplay, this is first and foremost a stealth game, so it's all about finding your way from point A to point B, often trying to coax Hugo along with you without getting detected and without getting mauled by rats. Yeah, more often than not, there's enemies that get in your way and you can take them down, but you have to remember that you are playing as Amicia, a teenage girl, so it's not really a fair fight when she has to take on the men of the 14th century, especially when they are desperate. And the main tool that you've got in your toolkit is a slingshot, but that does allow you to create distractions and sneak past enemies. Amicia does have some unique skills though. She's an expert when it comes to plants and herbs. That means she can collect various items from nature, combine them together, and make new innovative ammo for the slingshot. That allows you to affect the environment primarily by creating noise, but also by affecting the rats. The rats, while dangerous to you, are also a tool that you can use against your enemies. Now, it's all about the use of light. They don't like it and they won't touch you when you're in it or near it. Therefore, if you can manage to knock out an enemy's torch, then they are just going to be food for the rats. Well, a Plague Tale Requiem does bring in some new toys to play with, including a crossbow and various companions. So you can kill outright with the crossbow, as long as the enemies aren't wearing body armour, and you can use your companions to fight for you. For example, the soldier will fight for you, or you can work with Hugo, who controls the rats much more directly. Now, companions are very powerful, but unfortunately they're not with you the whole time. One of the standout features of the original game were the graphics, so the fidelity and the detail achieved in A Plague Tale Innocence were top shelf, and the sequel is as equally as impressive. The environment's really detailed, plus you get to experience it during the day and at night, when the sun is shining and also when it's raining. You know, whatever the weather, this is a stunning looking game. Well, the game ramps up in difficulty as you progress through the levels, which is natural. You know, the stealth sections are fairly frequent and can seem overly punishing in places. You know, if you get spotted during these stealth sections, enemies have the nasty habit of calling each other and more often than not, they're going to beat you to death. Now, while this doesn't really differ from the original, here, you do have a few more options and flexibility to escape the deadly beatdowns. So stealth isn't normally my genre, and I was made acutely aware of this during my time with A Plague Tale Requiem. One thing the game does really well is bring you along for the journey and clearly signpost where you have to go and what you have to do. So stealth could be compounded by confusion if you didn't know where to go, but your destination is normally clearly laid out in front of you, and while you may not know how to get there, at least you do know where to go, and how you get there is going to be the fun part, and this is something I really appreciated about the game. Well, your actions have consequences in a Playtale Requiem, so while the first game was about getting through the ordeal and navigating little Hugo to safety, here you've got the chance to kill more enemies, and it's something that weighs heavy on Amicia on their adventure. 
Often the supporting cast will react negatively if they see Amicia kill someone, and that adds to the story that you have to live with your actions. Yeah, similar to Red Dead Redemption 2, the environment reacting to your actions adds weight to the overall story, and also the gameplay mechanics. Well overall, A Plague Tale Requiem is a great sequel, and while I don't really gel well with stealth games, you know, this is more than just stealth. There are layers here of great story, interesting gameplay, fantastic visuals, and great audio too. So if you played the original, then it's a no-brainer to try out the sequel, but if you haven't played the series before and you'd like a good adventure, I would recommend giving A Plague Tale Requiem a go. Well, the game was developed by Asobo Studio, as published by Focus Entertainment. It's available for the PlayStation 5, the Xbox Series S and X, Nintendo Switch, and also PC2. And it was originally released on the 18th of October, 2022. Well, that is it for my review of A Plague Tale Requiem. Really, really good game. Also available on Xbox Game Pass. I forgot to mention that. It's a really, really good game if you want to dip into on that service. Well, that is it for A Plague Tale Requiem, but next up... It's time for Scorn. Well, Scorn is a puzzle game, unsettling and often very off-putting. It's got tons of atmosphere, although I've got a feeling this one is going to be a very divisive game. You exist in a very fleshy world. It appears as if muscles adorn the walls and blood makes every surface slippery. Machines and living entities appear to blend together, and sometimes it's hard to understand exactly what you are looking at. There's holes to which you have to place your hands, and it's creepy stuff, unlike anything I've seen before. There does seem to have been some confusion as to about what exactly Scorn is. Let's be clear, this is a puzzle game, albeit dressed up in the guise of an action horror. There are moments of action, although describing the activity as action doesn't really feel quite right. The main activity you're going to take part in are puzzles. So there is some feedback among audiences that they seem to expect something else, but part of me thinks that is projection rather than false advertising. I do think some people are expecting something like Returnal, and it's not that at all. Scorn is a curious game. You know, there's not really much hand-holding or explanation. There's no dialogue. There's no map. There's not really many prompts. It's up to you as the player to figure out what is going on through exploration, interacting with the environments, and solving relatively complex problems. There's no difficulty options either, so if you get stuck, there isn't really much you can do to help yourself get through things. So this can be both a blessing and a curse for some games, as I think in this instance it is going to be a curse. Yeah, while the puzzles are interesting and often challenging, the game is more visually challenging to look at, especially if you are squeamish like me. Environments appear to be made of flesh. You hatch deformed beings from eggs and wield organic weapons which are attached via umbilical cords. Now, it's strange, unsettling, and at times quite overwhelming. You know, when I think of puzzle games, I might think of something like Tetris Effect. You know, relaxing, great audio, getting into the groove. Here, the visuals are repulsive and the audio is disgusting in very, very similar ways. The visuals are inspired by Geiger and Bazinski. There's also phallic imagery and interactions to be found everywhere. You know, control panels aren't your standard sci-fi blinky buttons on a keyboard or on a control panel. They're literally fleshy holes that you push your hands into. Now, this is a world where you manipulate the meat to interact with the environment. And while this sounds interesting for short periods of time, 
I found it distinctly off-putting and not really motivating in terms of me coming back. So if you like this sort of thing, the game may hook you into repeat visits. Unfortunately, it had the opposite effect on me. Regarding the gameplay, it's slow and methodical. You start waking up in this terrifying world, slowly walking around to get your bearings, and then find a few meat switches to interact with. Yeah, soon you come across one of those crane games where you have to position various eggs into place, and then switch devices to break the eggs. Yeah, the puzzles aren't easy either. While you'll most likely get there in the end without any help, they aren't puzzles to be solved in a matter of seconds. You know, I don't think they're quite as challenging as the visuals, but the puzzles and the interactions are definitely up there on par. In terms of the UI though, it is very clean. You do get a small action prompt when you get near an item you can interact with and sometimes you have a positive interaction that ends with you thrusting your hand into some fleshy wall or maybe you can interact with it. You know, some puzzles do take time to interact with. Some puzzles require other items to help you solve that puzzle and you're not going to be told any of this so be prepared for that. When the setup is right, you know, I normally find this type of game appealing although I found the lack of feedback from Scorn a little bit difficult to work with. Now, I wanted to enjoy myself, but I found I was trying really, really hard with little positive reinforcement from the game itself. I was trying to have fun, but to be honest, it just wouldn't work for me. One frustrating element comes from the ability to save or not save. You know, there isn't a manual save, meaning you have to get to the end of an act if you want to save your progress. In a game where you're solving puzzles, often frustrating ones, Having the ability to take a break and come back to where you were would have been a great addition. However, when you shut things down and you're sent back to the start of the act, that only adds a layer of frustration. As well as the puzzling, there's also some combat in Scorn 2. You know, it is similar to a first-person shooter, but the controls didn't feel very satisfying at all. Now, I'm spoiled when it comes to shooters. I play Destiny 2 and sometimes Apex Legends, two of the best in the business. It's probably not fair to compare Scorn to games like that. However, I've been conditioned to expect great feeling shooters and Scorn did not feel great. It's passable, but nothing really to write home about. Overall, Scorn wasn't for me. You know, I'm happy I tried it, but I don't think I'll be going back to it and I can't really recommend it. So one of the positives for me is on Xbox Game Pass. So if you want to give it a try and see what you think of it, then you can do as part of your Game Pass subscription. I found it frustrating in almost every way, from the slow-paced movement to the obtuse puzzles, and also the lackluster combat. Well, the game was developed by Ebb Software, it was published by Ebb Software and Kepler Interactive. It's available on the Xbox Series S and X, also PC2. I reviewed it on Xbox Game Pass, and it was originally released on the 14th of October, 2022. Well, that is it for Scorn for now. Really disappointing for me, didn't really get along with it at all. But next up, we've got a return of the great. And this one is the return of Silent Hill. Well, for this one, I want to hand over to Vicky Blake from Eurogamer, who did an excellent write-up. And she started by saying Silent Hill is back, but is it too much too soon? Well, at 10.02 last night, alone in the kitchen, I screamed aloud in an empty room. To be fair, screaming is something I do a lot when Silent Hill is involved. Shock screams, scared screams, I panicked and now I've gone the wrong way screams. I've done them all. And last night was the very first time I think I've ever screamed in abject delight. You know, after a full decade of neglect and eight years of the eye-watering decision to scorch the earth of Kojima's seminal PT, Konami has resurrected the horror franchise 
But rather than dipping a cautious toe into the sea of public opinion, the Japanese publisher About Face was so abrupt it was dizzying. At 11pm on Tuesday night, Silent Hill was dead and had been for years. But 24 hours later, we have a sequel, a remake, a new Hollywood movie, and an interactive streaming series. I'm not really convinced I understand what the last one is yet, and that is in the works. Just in case the screaming didn't make it clear, I'm deliriously excited about all of this. I know some are cautious about the prospect of Bloober Team taking on Silent Hill 2. I know the studio's own titles have sometimes made clumsy work of dealing with mental health issues, and sometimes games were marred with tech and performance issues, but I firmly believe that the studio has evolved with every release, and whilst I still don't quite understand why James's face still changes so dramatically throughout the course of last night's teaser, I'm hopeful. It's a quiet, trembling kind of hope that needs a little coaxing, sure, but I'm going to take it. You know, quiet hope is better than no hope, right? Well, Silent Hill 2 is being remade alongside concept artist Mashiro Ito and sound designer Akira Yamaoka, both who worked on the original Silent Hill 2. Blooper CEO Peter Babino said, Silent Hill is the title that made Blooper Team's devs fall in love with horror games. We can only hope that ardent fans with that kind of insight have the confidence to do that remake justice without damaging the game's DNA. I think Motive's Dead Space remake team just may pull it off I desperately want Blooper to do so too. Well, that said, I am far more interested in the curiously titled Silent Hill Townfall, developed by Scottish team No Code, alongside Anna Perna, which had its name attached to Silent Hill some time ago, and Silent Hill F, the franchise's first non-Western story, set in 1960s Japan, written by famed Japanese visual novelist Rokishi 07. So it's hard to be excited about the movie, though, given the last Silent Hill film, which, to be fair, the returning director of the original Christoph Gans was not involved with. That was absolutely dreadful, but Ascension is undeniably intriguing too. Now, how strange it is to go from hoping for a sign of life, any sign from anyone at a time, I beg you, to finding there's not going to be one but five Silent Hill projects in development. For some of us, though, there's an uneasy whiff of deja vu here. This is not the first time Konami have done this. Now, back in 2012, we had a summer of Silent Hill, which saw three games in the movie release within weeks of each other. Silent Hill Downpour, Silent Hill Book of Memories, and the Silent Hill HD collection with the movie sequel, Silent Hill Revelations. So what should have been a celebration of all things Silent Hill backfired viciously when Revelations turned out to be appalling, the HD collection was and remains hysterically broken, and the PS Vita's Book of Memories, whilst a noble effort to try something new, just didn't sell. So taken on its own merit, Downpour was solid, and my top pick of the non-Japanese Silent Hill games thus far, but it too failed to get traction outside of the franchise's dwindling if passionate fanbase. So 2012, Summer of Silent Hill turned into the death of Silent Hill, and it's been that way ever since. Well, until yesterday anyway. Yeah, it was weird last night though, really weird. At its peak, Silent Hill was a memorable but niche horror franchise, and it lay dying in the middle of the road without any attempt for Konami to save it. Fast forward 10 years though, and the publisher seems chasing about every merchandising and licensing opportunity it can lay its hand on. No, I am not a Silent Hill purist who waxes endlessly about Team Silent. So I've spoken to some of the people inside the company over the years and know firsthand how hurt they were, given the numerous attempts to breathe new life into the series. I also think Konami has a curiously open mind to embryonic tech as well, with the motion-controlled Shattered Memories, a reimagining of the first game modernised with the Wii, that forced you to run away rather than fight enemies 
being a particularly delightful example. I am cautious though, wary even, but optimistic too. So whether or not Konami was right to simultaneously launch five Silent Hill projects remains to be seen. For now though, all I can think of is my scream of delight last night when the strings of Silent Hill 2's main theme bounced off my kitchen walls. Well, once again, huge thank you to Vicky Blake there talking about Silent Hill and her excitement was very, very infectious indeed. So I really hope you enjoyed that and I hope you enjoy the return of Silent Hill 2. Well, that is it for now for the return of Silent Hill. But next up, let's have a look at the all-platform charts. At number 10 this week, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons. That is up one place from last week's number 11. At number 9, up five places from last week's number 4, it's Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. Number 8 is Pokemon Legends Arceus, up two places from last week's number 10. And at number 7 is a new entry, it is PGA Tour 2K23. At number 6, up 15 places from last week's number 21, it's Lego Harry Potter Collection. And at number five, holding steady at number five, it's Nintendo Switch Sports. At number four, down two places from last week's number two, it's Splatoon 3. And at number three, up a whopping 25 places, it's Horizon Forbidden West. At number two this week, up one place from last week's number three, it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. And at number one, still at number one, it's FIFA 23. Well, that's it for the all-platform charts this week. Nintendo still doing well in the all-platform charts. But next up, I want to turn my attention to Google Stadia. They announced that it was shutting down a few weeks ago and I haven't really had a chance to speak about it. But now is definitely the time to change that. So I want to head over to this article from Michael McWhirter from Polygon. He put some excellent words together and described the situation really, really well. So Google Stadia is shutting down for good and Google is officially shutting down its ambitious game streaming project Stadia. So Phil Harrison, the vice president and general manager of Stadia, said in a blog post published on Thursday, and the announcement comes less than three years after the cloud gaming console launched. Well, Google Stadia is going to be shutting down in January 2023, and Harrison said that players who bought Stadia hardware and games are going to get a refund for their purchases. We're grateful to the dedicated Stadia players that have been with us from the start, Harrison said. We're going to be refunding all Stadia hardware purchases made through the Google Store and all game and add-on content also purchased made through the Stadia Store. Players will continue to have access to their game library and play through until January 18, 2023 so they can complete their final play sessions. We expect to have the majority of refunds completed by mid-January 2023 we can have more details for players on this process on our help centre. Harrison added that the cloud streaming technology that powered Google Stadia could power other Google products and that Google remained deeply committed to gaming. You know, we see clear opportunities to apply this technology to other parts of Google like YouTube, Google Play and our augmented reality efforts as well as make it available to our industry partners which aligns with where we see the future of gaming headed, Harrison said. We remain deeply committed to gaming and we continue to invest in new tools, technologies and platforms that power the success of developers, industry partners, cloud customers and creators. 
Well, Google Stadia was officially revealed in March 2019 at that year's Game Developers Conference. The cloud gaming platform launched in November that year, but without some of the ambitious promised features that initially made Stadia compelling. In Polygon's review of the platform, editor Chris Plant wrote, A video game console with an entry price of $129, Stadia is immensely disappointing. Many of its high-end features, you know, 4K, HDR, don't work across the entire service, not to mention many core components of the service that aren't available at launch. So at launch, Stadia required players to purchase a Founders Pack, which included a Chromecast Ultra, a Stadia controller, and a three-month Stadia Pro subscription. Twelve games were available on launch day, and the service was available in 14 countries. As a free service, Stadia could be revolutionary, we said in our Stadia launch day review. My takeaway from this experience is that the magic of Stadia isn't actually Stadia as a snazzy new console or platform. The magic of Stadia is that, in theory, a person doesn't need to know what Stadia is as an idea, you know, that it even exists. In April 2020, Google relaxed the requirements to play Stadia games, opening up the service to anyone with a Gmail address as long as they lived in a country where Stadia was available. Users were required to purchase the games from Stadia's own store or subscribe to Stadia Pro for $9.99 a month to access a list of games. In 2021, Google confirmed that it was shutting down its internal game studios dedicated to Stadia development and that Stadia Games and Entertainment Vice President Jade Raymond was leaving the company. Raymond has since established a new studio, Haven Studio, which has been acquired by Sony Interactive Entertainment. Well, next up, let's go over to the view from developers, and this one is from Jay Peters from The Verge. And Jay starts off by saying Stadia shutdown shocked developers too. So Stadia users weren't the only people shocked to learn that Google would be shutting down the cloud gaming service. Developers making games on the platform were surprised too. I woke up getting ready for my workday, and I see on our Discord private chat for the company that one of my employees sent a message saying, is this true? With the link, Rebecca Ann Hyman, CEO of Old Skull, said in an interview with The Verge. I follow the link and it's like, oh, okay. Old Skull had plans to launch Luxor Evolved on Stadia Pro on November the 1st and was even planning to meet Google on Friday to discuss the release plan. Well, that obviously isn't happening now. Heinemann was just one of many that were surprised. You know, we were having marketing discussions with Stadia just last week. Brandon Sheffield, the creative director at Necrosoft Games, said in an email to The Verge, Nexsoft was working on the Hyper Gunsport for Stadia Pro. They released a new software development kit update two days ago, so it's unfortunate all round, as I think the platform was gaining some good traction. Others shared their frustrations on Twitter. Oh my god, Mike Rose of No More Robots said in a tweet, we've got a game coming to Stadia in November. Who wants to guess that Google will refuse to pay us the money that they owe us for it? Now, after weeks of paperwork and preparations to bring Donut Dodo, Sir Lovelot and Siggy to Stadia, we were successfully finalised the onboarding process with Google yesterday, developer Pixel Games tweeted. Two hours later, the news hit us that Stadia is shutting down. Well, that is just sad. So Stadia's sudden shutdown could have a big impact on developers. The platform never reached critical mass, so developers probably didn't even earn too much by offering their games there. But they likely counted on it as one of the many places that people could play their titles, and because Google has already shut off the e-commerce in the Stadia store, developers can't make money from selling their games during the last months of the service life. Google is planning to refund all Stadia hardware and software purchases, though not Stadia Pro subscriptions, 
so consumers will be getting some money back. Developers may be getting some form of reimbursement as well, although it's less clear as to what they can expect. On Friday, Old Skull's Twitter account said that Google is working to quote-unquote make it right, with Hyman saying that Stadia's representative approached her about reimbursing the studio for development costs spent on porting the Stadia version of Luxor Evolved. Old Skull also had Stadia-exclusive features planned for the game, but is now allowed to implement them on other platforms. For Necrosoft, according to Sheffield, all I know is that Google said they're going to try and do something for us, but he doesn't have any details and Google didn't reply to a request for comment. Both Heinemann and Sheffield were looking forward to launching on Stadia Pro, in part because Google shared revenue from subscriptions with developers. And while Sheffield said that Hypergunsport will be available on many platforms, Stadia was a pillar for us because we knew by launching into Pro we get a significant chunk of revenue, even enough to play our dev cost back by itself. For Old Skull, not being able to launch on Stadia won't sink the studio. You know, I was only expecting to break even on Stadia, Hyman said. We were realistic in that we might have made 10,000 profit on top of the Stadia version. You know, Stadia, exclusive like Pixel Junk Raiders, will become unplayable. Another aspect of Stadia's shutdown is that a few exclusives of the platform will become unplayable, like Q Games Pixel Junk Raiders. As an exclusive Stadia title, once the service closes, it's going to no longer be available to play, Holly Hughes said, head of marketing and PR for Q Games, in a statement to The Verge. The company hopes to bring the game to other platforms in the future and is open to working with the publishing partners to make that happen, Hughes said, and Q Games has brought back older games before, so maybe it's going to be able to give Pixel Junk Raiders a second life. Necrosoft's original Gunsport remains a Stadia exclusive, and it might go down with the ship, Sheffield said. So some companies are exploring to let their Stadia customers keep playing in some way. Hitman developer IO Interactive tweeted Friday, We're looking for ways to continue your Hitman experience on other platforms. In an email, IO Interactive Communications Manager Travis Barbour said that there's few approaches that we're looking at. We need to figure out which one fits best for us all and when we can roll them out. We want to have something in place before the end of the year. Ubisoft is going to let you transfer your Stadia purchases to PC and Cyberpunk 2077 developer CD Projekt Red is currently looking into the matter and exploring all possibilities, spokesperson Rajek Grabowski tells The Verge. But smaller developers and publishers may not be able to offer the same sorts of perks to the Stadia players. And at least for Sheffield, losing Stadia means losing a positive community. You know, for whatever reason, because Stadia was so maligned by the players that didn't play it, the actual Stadia players were almost like apologetically nice. They gave any new game that came out a try, they were really supportive of devs and of each other, and in general, somehow the platform cultivated one of the nicest, least toxic player groups I've seen on any platform, so we really wanted to release the game on Stadia out of appreciation for them supporting the original game as much as they did. Well that is it for now for Google Stadia, so thank you to Polygon and also The Verge for write-ups there, really really good stuff. I've got links there down below in the description or the show notes if you want to check out those original articles. Well, that is it for now for Google Stadia, but next up, let's check out the Resident Evil Showcase. Well, next up, I want to go into everything that we saw at the big Resident Evil Showcase, and this one comes from Zach Zwiezen out of Kotaku. Well, Capcom held another digital showcase dedicated to all things Resident Evil, 
So previously, the publisher had done something similar back in June and before that, in April of 2021, as in those Capcom used the event to show off new trailers and gameplay footage of the upcoming Resident Evil projects, like Resident Evil 4's remake. Well, here's everything that Capcom announced and showed during the event, and it was about 30 minutes long. Well, first of all, we had a new trailer for the Winters expansion. So Capcom kicked off the show with a new trailer for the upcoming Resident Evil Village DLC expansion that included a new narrative campaign starring Ethan's daughter Rose. The developer also shared some more background on Rose and why they decided to make her the star of the Village's new story expansion. Well, the Winters expansion, which can be bought separately or as part of a larger Resident Evil Village Gold Edition package, also includes a new third-person mode for the main campaign and the new content for the game's action-packed Mercenaries mode, or even letting you play as Lady D herself. Although she will now be shorter, one of the biggest disappointments of 2022. Now, all of this is out on October the 28th, 2022, and that is out for all the major platforms. Next up, multiplayer shooter Resident Evil Reverse is still coming out later this month, and while I'm not very excited to play it, the online shooter Resident Evil Reverse is still coming out on October the 28th, it's going to be free for all owners of Resident Evil Village or Resident Evil Village Gold Edition, and Capcom announced it will fully support crossplay and showed off the new gameplay featuring locations and characters from Village. Capcom said it had plans to update the game multiple times, even showing a roadmap of new content come to the game post-launch. It will also have an early access period starting on October the 24th for all Village owners. Well, Capcom also announced the release date for the new cloud version of Resident Evil Village RE7, RE2 Remake and RE3 Remake coming to Nintendo Switch. He had previously announced that these ports were in the works, but now we know when we can play them. All these games have demos letting folks check out how well they stream over their internet connection. RE2's cloud version releases on November the 11th this year. After that, RE3 hits on November the 18th. And finally, RE7 lands on December the 16th. 2022. And Resident Evil Village is also making the leap to max on October the 28th with the Winter's Expansion DLC coming at a later unannounced date. Well next up we've got new gameplay of Resident Evil 4 Remake and pre-orders have started. So Capcom previously promised more gameplay footage of the upcoming remake and really delivered on it during the event. In the footage we see what appears to be a reimagined version of the opening section of Resident Evil 4 including that iconic village sequence and that cool moment when Leon leaps out of a window like an action star. Even the scary chainsaw man showed up to ruin Leon's day. Yep, I'm going to be buying this game again. Yeah, Capcom also released a brand new cinematic trailer featuring Ada, Ashley and other scenes from iconic moments in the game. We can now pre-order Resident Evil 4 Remake on PS4, PS5, Xbox Series S and X and PC starting today, with various versions coming out with different goodies. In a very nice move, Capcom said the folks who buy the game on PS4 will be able to upgrade to the PS5 version for free. This new remake is now out on March 24th, 2023. Well, that is it for now for Resident Evil, just in time for Halloween and that remake. Resident Evil 4 looks really, really cool. Can't wait to get my hands onto that one. But that is it for now for Resident Evil. But next up, let's have a look at Festival of the Lost in Destiny 2 and also the state of seasonal events. Festival of the Lost has been out for a few days now and I wanted to give a quick review of the event so far. 
Plus also have a look into the current state of seasonal events in Destiny 2. Well today I'm going to have a look at the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to Festival of the Lost. But also have a look at the wider context of what Bungie could do to improve things for the future. Well this past Tuesday, Eva Levante arrived in the tower and we put on our scary masks and started farming candy and spectral pages plus the seasonal loot to celebrate Festival of the Lost in 2022. The event is around for three weeks and included in the event is the seasonal activity Haunted Sectors and we've got returning weapons including two auto rifles, a pulse rifle and the new sniper, the Macabre. And we got new masks, one new Haunted Sector Plus we got the event card that has been added into the mix, a new-ish feature that was added into Destiny 2 earlier on this year. Well first of all, I want to have a look into things that I'm enjoying about the event. And first of all, the Sniper, the Macabre. This is a great addition to the loot pool. Snipers aren't in the best place in the sandbox right now. However, if you do like using snipers, this one compares very positively against other snipers in the game. Plus you can get it for free by completing the introduction quest in Festival of the Lost. If you like sniping in PvP, then even better because Evil Levante just gives us a very decent role with snapshot sights and opening shot. You know, fresh out of the gate, two very good perks for a Destiny 2 sniper. Well, next up, Haunted Sectors. So personally, I enjoy Haunted Sectors much more than the previous activity called the Haunted Forest. So Haunted Sectors are repurposed Lost Sectors, which include the addition of a new enemy type called the Headless Ones, which are essentially powerful enemies that spawn throughout the mode after you stood in a summoning circle for a short amount of time. Now, I find Haunted Sectors much more interesting and enjoyable than the Haunted Forest, which was a lot more traversing the environment compared to the action. Well, next up we got the ornaments. So first of all, I like the fact that Bungie has us voting for the armor ornaments earlier in the year. This gives us motivation and a sense of ownership over the decision of which ornaments are put into the game. I think the final product looked pretty good too, you know, the Titan armor probably looks the best. Also, I like the fact that we can buy these things with Bright Dust, the in-game currency. Yes, they are expensive, but you can play the game, gather the Bright Dust from the free track on the Season Pass, plus you can complete bounties from the vendors in the tower to build up a healthy amount of Bright Dust prior to the event. You can also purchase via Silver, but for me, this is a rare occurrence unless I really, really like the cosmetics, as was the case with the Fortnite skins this season. Finally, the event title or seal, you know, I am really enjoying this. It means completing a bunch of triumphs or objectives in the game for which you earn a unique event title or seal. Well, if it's completed within the event, then you can purchase the real-life seal or pin too, which I've started collecting. Well, this process isn't for everybody, but it definitely gets me more engaged in the event. Well, next up, let's have a look at the things I'm not enjoying. So first of all, quest bugs. This didn't happen to me, but loads of Destiny 2 players were posting that their introduction quest was bugged, meaning they couldn't complete the introduction or make any progress on the day it came out. This is a fast way to kill enthusiasm for the event among the community, but to Bungie's credit they did get a fix out on the day of release, but the damage had already been done. In the future, I'd love to see attention paid to the introduction quest. This has to be faultless, as this could be the first impression that many players get when they first play Destiny. Now, for example, if they're a returning player or a new player, having a quest you can't progress through will be wildly frustrating, and I wouldn't really blame players for not coming back. Next up, we got the Eververse store. So seasonal events do have a bad reputation among the Destiny community in that they push the promotion for cosmetics via the Eververse store, Destiny 2's in-game cosmetic shop. 
Now, these items don't give you an in-game advantage. They're all cosmetic. But Bungie pushes this hard. It's a shame that the best items are locked away in the Eververse store and aren't available for everyone just by playing the game. I understand that Destiny 2 has a free-to-play component and you can join in Festival of the Lost and other seasonal events for free, but it's just a shame. You know, this was compounded this year by the bright dust on certain events being reduced from 200 to 100, meaning you got much less bright dust at the same time as Bungie pushing their Eververse content. This was later identified as a bug and addressed in their weekly update as a known issue, but to be honest, it just leaves a sour taste in the mouth. I'd like to see more balance when it comes to Eververse. All items should be available for Bright Dust and increase the amount of Bright Dust earned throughout the game. Next up, we got Origin Traits. So this was a new feature added to Destiny 2's loot pool in the Witch Queen expansion. That was earlier on in February. Origin Traits are specific perks for weapon sets, and we got a new Origin Trait for Festival of the Lost Weapons. However, some of the older weapons have been dropping without this Origin Trait, meaning you don't get the benefits of that new perk. Could be the difference between wanting to get this new weapon and not. It's also a good motivating factor to come back and play the seasonal event over and over again. Much like the first bug for the introduction quest, it'd be great to see some more testing on these features to prevent player frustration in the future. Well, next up, we got the upgraded event card. So you can upgrade your event card from the free to the premium version. That is quote unquote premium version. This will instantly unlock a few cosmetic versions like the Bobbing for Apples emote, the Bold Chapaloo Sparrow, and the Angel's Gleam Shader. So you can also trade in tickets earned from challenges to get more cosmetics. The upgraded event card costs 1,000 silver, which is about $10 or about £10. Now, personally, there's not enough here for me to upgrade, and it feels like another play to get you to spend more money. So we've already got the Eververse store, which is being pushed in your face. And this introduced a new quote-unquote premium feature, which really is just a confusing user journey with lackluster rewards. I don't think we need it. I'd like to see it removed in the future, but I guess this is the state of gaming in 2022. Well, that is some of the pros and cons that I think about with Festival of the Lost 2022. But next up, I want to have a look at the state of seasonal events in general. So I think there's a lot to like about seasonal events in Destiny 2. We've got Festival of the Lost for Halloween, The Dawning, for Christmas, Guardian Games in Spring, and then Solstice in the Summer. The cosmetics are great, I particularly like the Guardian Games set this year with the RGB shader. You know, that is a keeper. Bungie always do a great job with the cosmetics for Festival of the Lost, and involving the community in picking out which set to create is a great idea, and I really, really appreciate that. The events, they're regular enough to be fun without getting tired of them. It's the Eververse promotion that is rubbing people the wrong way. Ideally, in a looter shooter, we have the best-looking gear earnable in the game rather than being purchased through the Eververse store. So while I understand the need for Bungie to promote the Eververse store, during these events, it feels like that is dialed up to 11. Regarding the seasonal event activities, personally, I think Solstice is the best. As discussed today, Festival of the Lost has you doing much more outside the activity, you know, gathering spectral pages in playlists, and then converting them to haunted sectors. So the European Aerial Zone feels like a better activity to me. Plus you've got that side objective of levelling up your armour. Guardian Games has the Laurel collecting and competing against other classes. That adds a nice twist. Then you've got the Dawning with the cookie baking and the ingredients gathering. The introduction of the event card for me is a massive con rather than a pro. Although I don't really engage personally with that purchasable upgrade. I only run on the free track. 
For me, the extra cosmetics aren't really worth that cost, so in recent seasonal events the bugs have been rampant, and hopefully Bungie can invest some time into fixing those as we go into Lightfall and improve things overall. You know, I have enjoyed the introduction of unique titles for these events, earning my Flamekeeper title for Solstice, and I'm well on my way to earning the Ghostwriter title for Festival of the Lost. The title gives me a set of objectives, and I'm much more inclined to come back time and time again when these objectives are laid out. Plus, I get the IRS seal pin, which I really do enjoy collecting. Overall, it is a mixed bag for seasonal events for me in Destiny 2. There's a lot to like, but a massive emphasis on the Eververse store is disappointing, and only getting more extreme as the years go by. Bungie is investing in these events with changes to Solstice and Festival of the Lost in recent years, so really, I do appreciate that. Well, that is it for now for Festival of the Lost and the state of seasonal events in Destiny 2. But next up, let's have a look at what we've got coming in the next few weeks. Well, on October the 25th, we've got Garbage Pale Kids, Mad Mike, and the Quest for Stale Gum. That's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. On the 27th of October, we've got a few games. We've got Saturnala, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. We've got Signalis, that's PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. We've got Star Ocean, The Divine Force, that's PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Then on October the 28th, we've got Bayonetta 3, that is the big new one coming to Nintendo Switch. Also on the 28th, we've got Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. We've also got Resident Evil Reverse coming to PS4, Xbox One, and PC. And we've got Resident Evil Village, that's coming to Switch and Mac. And Resident Evil Village Winter's Expansion, that is coming on the PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Stadia and PC. On November the 3rd, we've got Endling, Extinction is Forever, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, and How to Say Goodbye, that one is coming to Switch, PC, Mac, iOS and Android. Then we've got The Chant, that one is coming to PS5, Xbox Series S and X and PC. And then we've got The Entropy Center, so PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One and PC, and WRC Generations, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Then a few games on November the 4th. Demon Throttle, that is coming to Switch. And Harvestella, that is coming to Switch and PC. And finally, It Takes Two, that is coming to Nintendo Switch, also on November the 4th. Well, that is going to be it for this week's episode. And if you want to get involved in the show, get in contact through patreon.com forward slash this week in video games. Or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions, your comments, and your video game stories. I'm always interested in hearing from you. Or you can also follow me and tweet me at TWIVG Podcast, and I'll read out your tweets in a future episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, I've had it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, check out the other podcasts in the feed. Well, thanks again, and I'll see you soon.